0: Thank you. Thank you for those prayers, Galen. Um, We're going to be driving back out, my wife and son and I here in uh, in about a week, so I would appreciate your prayers. Um, This is the first time we've done this long distance a trip with a (laughs) two-year-old. I'm flying in this completely ignorant. I want to keep it that way. (laughs) So in light of school starting back up this week, I'm going to start you out with a A very simple quiz, okay? Very, very simple. Please listen to this and tell me what these items have in common. A hammer without a head, a dead iPhone, a guitar without strings, a razor without a blade, and a car without tires. Thank you! Yes! A plus. All of those things, and if you've ever been stuck with one of those, you know that they are all completely useless. Not a single one of those things is able to do what it was it was made to do. It's not why we keep those things around. A similar thing can happen to Christians. Christians can become useless, and it happens when Christians no longer act and think in accordance with the Scriptures. It happens when Christians lose their biblical worldview. I came across a study this past week, it was conducted by the Barner Research Group, and they asked nine questions to people who professed to be born again. So everyone that participated in this uh, this research, this survey, they answered nine questions. All of them professed to be born again. And I wanna show you the nine questions that they were asked. One, do absolute moral truths exist? Is absolute truth defined by the Bible? Did Jesus Christ live a sinless life? Is God the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe, and does he still rule it today? Is salvation a gift from God that cannot be earned? Is Satan real? Does a Christian have a responsibility to share his or her faith in Christ with other people? Is the Bible accurate in all of its teachings? If you answered yes to all of those, and frankly, I hope you did, you are in a 9% block. Only 9% of people who profess to have been born again, (laughs) according to (laughs) this research, answered yes to all of those questions. Uh, So what happens when the the standards that God has created go either unlearned or unheeded because Christians don't have a biblical worldview? What happens when Christians no longer hold the Bible to be the authority? What happens when Christian lives really look no different than the way the rest of the world is living? Today we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 through 32 and we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this danger of losing a biblical worldview and what happens whenever Christians start to neglect the things of God's Word and start living the way everyone else does. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. First, we're going to look at um, verses 17 through 24, so we'll read those right now. And Paul says this, he says, Now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of hurt heart. They have become callous and have become and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Last week, we started this new series called Learning to Walk. We took a look at maintaining unity within the body of Christ. And in the midst of a diverse group of people, we've got a very diverse group of people here in the church. Every church is full by the grace of God by a diverse group of people with diverse gifting. As we looked last week, we saw that um, walking in unity means to check our attitudes. How are we doing with patience, humility, gentleness, contributing to the body? and not comparing ourselves to other people. And today we're going to take a closer look at what a biblical walk looks like. You can call it a walk in holiness. Because unity does not necessarily guarantee holiness. So we're going to walk through this passage today, as well as some more verses at the end of chapter 4. And we're going to look at three things. First, we'll look backwards, and we'll see how we were. Then we'll look forwards and we'll see how we are and then we'll look at some resulting do's and don'ts that have come at the end of that chapter some very good straightforward applications about walking in holiness so let's start um, with who we were and in verses 17 through 19 um, paul describes the way the gentiles lived before they became christians And we see it there in verse 17 he says now this i say and testify in the lord that you must no longer walk as the gentiles do he says in the futility of their minds he's pointing out this problem that's going on in this church in ephesus that their walk is off and they're walking as though they had not truly accepted christ although he's confident that they have They're doing life like they used to before they became believers. And here is the nature of an unbeliever. And he says, first of all, they're futile in their thinking. Futile is an interesting word, Uh, it can mean purposeless, aimless, void of what direction you need to be going in. Uh, It means that you don't have any useful aim or goal, so they're missing the true purpose for thinking, which begs the question, well, what is the true purpose for thinking? And I love this line. I got this, this was from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It's to receive God's revelation which would guide them in their conduct. So the biggest problem with the the unbelievers in this, this area and how these believers in this church in Ephesus are emulating them is they're not receiving the word of God because it would guide them in their conduct. So since their minds are not receiving the word of God, the result is what we find in verses 18 and 19. And by the way, these are some of the most chilling words in the New Testament. It says they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, callous, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, practice every kind of impurity and Paul echoes something similar to this in Romans 1 20, 21. he says their foolish hearts were darkened so this is a life devoid of any purpose any meaning this is the life of those who are committing the sin of unbelief they're living a life alienated from God the giver of life And before we dare throw a stone or point a finger, let's not forget that there but by the grace of God are we. That's exactly where you and I would be had not Christ called out to us and we responded in belief and he saved us. That's a description of how you and I were. Now Ephesus at the time Uh, was thought to be sort of a center of sorcery and magic it was thought that people could go there actually and learn how to do magic Uh, there was also a a fertility goddess named artemis that was prominent there she had a temple and so all these things are what these ephesians had been pursuing prior to paul coming there and making christ known and he's saying it was it's futile this path they were on not knowing what direction to go in But see, then the question now comes to us. In our modern day, in our modern culture, well, what does futile thinking look like? And I think that this is a constant struggle for the believer. As a matter of fact, Paul wouldn't be bringing this all up if it weren't also a struggle for the believer. So believers are not immune, and certainly pastors are not immune, uh, and I think what happens is uh, we make what Pastor Tim Keller calls "good things ultimate things." We make good things ultimate things. For example, uh, achievement in athletics. That's a good thing. But what happens when that becomes an ultimate thing? when that is the thing that someone is living their life for, or a career, or it could be family? You have always enjoyed watching tennis. And uh, one of my favorite tennis players was a guy by the name of Boris Becker. Does anybody remember Boris Becker? Great tennis player, tall, red-haired German. And um, he came to a point, Is was actually when he was on the very top of his game, when he was on the tip of, of the tennis world, he actually became suicidal. And he had a very interesting quote. Um, He said, I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player. I was rich, had all the material possessions I needed. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything in that they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. Boris Becker is not alone in this. Uh, He's not the only one to sense a feeling of emptiness after achieving uh, something great. There's a lot of contemporary biographies that echo a very similar notion. As a matter of fact, there's an an author, uh, you may have heard of him, Jack Higgins. He wrote a book called The Eagle Has Landed. And somebody asked him, what do you wish you would have known as a boy? And a really interesting answer. He said that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Jim Carrey, the actor, you may know him from, he was in a Batman, he's been in all kinds of movies. Um, Jim Carrey said something along these same lines. He said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. It's just not there. And again, doing well in a career is not a bad thing. Achieving in athletics is not a bad thing. Um... The problem is, those things are never going to live up to your expectations. Um, and you, for some, it may be romantic love. You may, you may be sitting here this morning thinking, if you could just get that boyfriend or that girlfriend or that spouse. I'm here to say, I love my spouse dearly, but there's no way that she could handle being the ultimate thing. As a matter of fact, I was, I was going through some, some lyrics to some old 80s songs, some old 80s, uh, 80s love songs uh, this past week. And I counted up, <clears throat> just, I just did this briefly, um, at least five songs in which the singer indicated that if he couldn't have such and such a woman, he was going to die. <laughs> it was going to kill him if he couldn't get her. I'm here to tell you, you won't die. You know, if that special somebody you like doesn't like, you're not gonna die. Not to mention the, uh, the police. Uh, I mean, every breath you take, <laughs> every move you make, I mean, it's just kinda creepy, isn't it? <laughs> this guy's working, he's working way too hard at this. I'll be watching you, I'll be, ugh. <laughs> but what happens when you make romance an ultimate thing no human relationship can bear the weight of eternity when god himself is not our main pursuit we're grasping at straws and you know what that's what you see going on in our culture you see a lot of people grasping at straws they're looking for it <coughs> they're looking for it and it is any substitute for god however they can find it. There are narratives in our culture that try to tell us what really gives somebody meaning. And it's a lie. It's a lie from Satan. He's bathing all kinds of people in. So for those of us who are here and we've trusted Christ as our Savior, this is you, who Paul's referring to, that can make good things ultimate things. See. Pastors are susceptible to this too. If we find value in the number of people that show up on a Sunday, how good we think a sermon goes, pastors are very susceptible to this. Paul is telling these Gentiles don't live that way. And the scriptures are telling us don't live that way. Uh, For Christians, it's always going to be a struggle to not give in to the world's way of thinking. He wouldn't be telling us this if that just came naturally. Telling you that what gives you values, looks, or education, or money, good things but not ultimate things. These things are futile, fruitless, and purposeless. So this is how we were. Okay, that's a picture of how we were. Now let's take a look at who we are. And we see it in verses 20 through 24. Uh, But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we immediately see a contrast. These Christians that Paul is speaking to, he said, you didn't come to Christ this way. And Paul, as well as other preachers, had brought the gospel to them. And their minds are no longer darkened. They're not alienated from God. Their hearts are not hardened and callous. As a matter of fact, Paul there in verse 21 said they were also taught about him and in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. There's an important distinction going on. there. It's a little difficult to understand. But there's a difference between learning about Jesus and being in Jesus. There's a difference in in pursuing Christ in an academic sense and truly repenting of your sin and trusting in Him as your Savior. See, that's what it means to be in Christ. And we are in Christ. He doesn't just leave us there. The Holy Spirit begins His ministry at that moment in your life at the point of conversion. And I've always sort of likened the Holy Spirit as being the ultimate physical trainer. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, If you've ever been to a gym and have gone through the pain of having a physical trainer, you know that if you tell them that you need to lose 15 pounds, you're going to lose 15 pounds. And that trainer may say, now look, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. The Holy Spirit comes into our life. And imagine a trainer that has 24-hour-a-day access to your life, who is unrelenting, never gets tired, and it's in the business of making you more like Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And not totally unlike that trainer, he says, okay, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. We'll see that a little bit more at the end of this passage. Then in verse 22, you were taught with reference to your former way of life to lay aside the old man who's being corrupted in accordance with deceitful desires. Now, it's important to understand this is not an imperative command, okay? Paul is not commanding them to put off this old self. This is a fact that these believers have learned, that the old self has already been put off. He's saying that happens at the moment of conversion the old person is gone he says something similar to this in Romans chapter 6 verse 6 he says we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin so the old self is gone okay it's not by your own efforts you put off your old self now we still struggle with the flesh but the old self is gone And now there's this new self the old self was corrupted by all those deceitful desires we were talking about earlier but not so with the new man and the spirit of the mind is renewed by the way the verb tense suggests that the spirit of your mind your mind is constantly being renewed so even though the old self is gone your mind is going through a constant state of renewal because we're constantly learning and believing right things about god He's constantly teaching us about himself. The Holy Spirit is constantly working. Um, So this is a mind that can discern, it can have purpose, it can have meaning. By the way, it's interesting, one of the aspects of this word desire, uh, it it has to do with grabbing at an illusion. It's like you're constantly trying to grab at something that, that isn't there. The old man was at the mercy of grasping for something ungodly trying to satiate desires so the verses 23 and 24 be renewed in the spirit of your mind put on the new man who's been created in god's image in righteousness and holiness that comes from the truth so we have a new way of thinking according to verse 23 a renewed mind continually renewed and it's we're, we're being taught how to conduct ourselves That's what's happening. By virtue of being a Christian, you've put on this new man. In righteousness, in righteousness and holiness that comes from truth. Uh, So, as a believer, don't forget this. You have been declared righteous and holy. And that's not an easy thing to really get down on the heart level. We sang it today. That we have been made righteous. It is not by your own efforts that you're righteous and holy. It's because God has has made you that way. By virtue of trusting in Christ, he put the righteousness of Christ in you. So when God looks down on you, he doesn't see the sins and the things that you've done this past week, last year, 50 years ago. He sees the righteousness of Christ. So when these guilty feelings come up, God is not giving you those guilty feelings. The sin's forgiven. And he sees the righteousness of his own son. So as we go through these things, remember, righteousness and holiness is is not by your own effort. See, what Paul's saying is live in a way in accordance with what you are. We are righteous and holy because we've been declared righteous and holy. Therefore, let your actions match what you are. He's reminding these new Christians in Ephesus That this is the way we need to live because of who we are. So in these next verses, um, we're going to see some really clear instruction of how to live in the light of salvation we've received. So we've talked about the old man chasing futile desires. We've talked about who we are, the new man, this renewed mind that we have. And now we're going to look at some resulting do's and don'ts. So as a result of who we are, he's saying this is what you should do and should not do. So starting at verse 25. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. You know, telling the truth can be a very difficult thing. As a matter of fact, there are some really common Christian lies out there that we tell. Uh, I found a website that talked about seven common Christian lies. It was too painful to go through all seven, so I'm just going to emphasize one. Okay? <laughs> One of the very common Christian lies we tell is that, that we're okay when we're not. We do this all the time. How you doing? Good. God has my socks off. You know, I get it. Uh, it's easier to do that than to really tell someone, you know, I'm doing rotten. It's been a horrible day. Nothing has gone right. So we tell this little lie We do it all the time. We've probably done it this morning if we're going to be completely honest. Um, Let me tell you, uh, as a Christian, you're allowed to have a bad day. Jesus didn't have a great day every day. As a matter of fact, he was described as a man of sorrows. He wept. Um, If you look at the Old Testament prophets, men who were smack dab in the middle of God's will, oftentimes confessed, you know i just want to die and you know what i bet some of you walk in here this morning feeling just about that same way i don't know what's going on in your lives but i know that you're not all okay no way as a matter of fact if a few of you are okay i think that's great i mean school's starting tomorrow for crying out loud <laughs> so if somebody asks you how you're doing just give them the benefit of the doubt that it's a sincere request. And you know, if you can't just give them a complete rundown, say, you know what? I'm not doing great. Would you just please pray for me? That's all you got to say. And you know, I think people would understand. So then, don't say okay when you're not. Then in verses 26 and 27, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. You know, life happens and we're going to get angry from time to time. As a matter of fact, last week we looked at times when you should get angry about things. I mean, injustices done to kids, uh, should make us angry. Jesus got angry when when he went to the temple and turned over the the tables. Uh, Moses was angry when he saw the the children of Israel sinning against God. Um, The problem is when we lose control. We blurt out things sometimes or we act out in some ways. Now it, it turns into sin. Um, So don't do something sinful when you're angry. Then he gives these two further commands. The first is don't let the sun set on your anger. (coughs) Keep short accounts of your anger. Deal something when you need to deal with it. Now, I know that tomorrow morning, the schedules are going to be upset. You're going to have to kick in. And many of you, if you've got kids in school, you're going to have to, to jump in and inevitably something's going to go wrong there's going to be miscommunication happening between husband and wife some of you are going to get angry and you're not going to be able to deal with it until till you get home till husband gets home till you get a chance to be with your your wife i'm I'm speaking out of experience here by the way so you you spend the whole day angry and then you get to points like okay maybe i can just let it go and if you can great if not you need to talk about it pick a time to talk about it now what melissa and i have done and i do not recommend this is you wait all the way up till you're both laying in bed you're laying there you can't <laughs> sleep because you're still thinking about it <sighs> and now you're exhausted but now you, you you've still got to talk about it or else you're not gonna be able to sleep then 11 o'clock rolls around 12 o'clock rolls around Deal with it as early as you can. If you can deal with it before you get to that moment where you're both laying there in bed and you can't sleep. Because if you don't deal with it, guess what? You're going to wake up tired the next morning and you're probably going to be even more angry than you were the night before. I'm speaking out of experience on this one. Keep short accounts. Don't dwell on it. said so the devil may get a foothold. If Satan can take your anger to the next level, he absolutely will. He will take it to the next level. You know what? There is no sin that any one of us in here are not capable of committing. I'm convinced of that. If Satan can get you to be violent against someone, if he can get you to be violent against your spouse, he will absolutely take advantage of that. So keep a short account of your anger. Forgive and let go. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We need to work so we can get rich. No, wait. No, that's not what it says. It says we need to work so we can share with those in need. Boy, that's not necessarily an American thing to do. And by the way, I want to take a moment to congratulate this church on their generosity because 30 kids at Coffey and Elementary School were blessed with new backpacks. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for your generosity. And we need to be generous when we can. Uh, I think that probably rarely means giving money to people, ironically. It doesn't mean never do it, but uh, it, you've got to be very careful when you're giving money to someone. It, it might be better to refer them to an organization like the VOA. Uh, if they need help, if they have an addiction, if that's why they're struggling financially. So be generous. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. These are speaking words that benefit someone. And right now, I bet in your mind, you can picture someone you know that's really, really good at this. There were two ladies at my last church, uh, Wanda and Helen and they were experts of knowing how to encourage people with words I get choked up even thinking about it right now when I called and tell, told Helen goodbye when I was coming here I broke down on the phone because it just hit me right then how much her encouraging words had literally kept me going from time to time you know what I, an encouraging word to somebody you are giving them a glass of water on a dry hot thirsty desert kind of a day you have no idea how beneficial words like that can be they give grace um, speak loving truth especially if you have to speak difficult truth to someone if you've got to speak difficult truth to someone you know what also speak some loving truth to that person then finally verses 30 through 32 don't grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you so how do we walk in holiness i think it's really simple walk in holiness by loving other people well And you can even say, walk in holiness by loving God and others well. You see, in all these verses that Paul gives us, I can see that it's got a whole lot to do with how we are treating each other, how we're speaking to each other, how we're forgiving each other, how we're being kind to each other. So we can walk in holiness by loving others well. And in closing i want to share with you part of a letter uh, this was actually written in ad 130. it's called the epistle of diogenes and it's a description of what christian living was expected to be in the second century so this is not far removed from the apostles As a matter of fact the grandparents or great-grandparents of some of, of the man writing this letter may have been discipled by one of the apostles themselves So as you think about living out holiness, please listen to this letter that was written about Christians in the second century. He said, They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. And I want to remind you that the church was under tremendous persecution uh, at this time in history. He says, Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is a land of Strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. (coughs) There was child sacrifice going on. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. Talking about the hope of the resurrection. They are poor yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, that are Christians in the world. Can you imagine the kind of impact that we could have on the town of Sheridan, if we could live out the kind of holiness like these men and women, living with the daily reality of a heavenly hope. Please pray with me. Lord, it is not easy to live in this culture at this time, at this place, and yet to walk in holiness holy spirit help us to do this help us to live daily with a hope that does not lie in anything this world can offer us but only in what lies in eternity i pray that you would help us to cement that reality down on the level of our hearts lord change our desires to match your own it's in the holy and precious name of jesus we pray amen